Chapter 8 of The Gladstone Colony, an unwritten chapter of Australian history by James Francis Hogan. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. The Experiences of a Pioneer Squatter. In the course of an interesting speech delivered in Sydney on the 1st of May 1854, Mr. T. S. Mort, one of the greatest names in the history of the Australian wool trade, made a noteworthy reference to the prominent part played by the pioneer squatters in the opening up and development of Australia in general, and the Port Curtis district in particular. He pointed out that the squatting interest was the primeval interest of the colony, the interest which had brought the colony into its present prosperous position, and if the colony were to continue to flourish, this interest must be encouraged until improved means of internal communication had rendered the interior fully available for settled enterprise. The squatters had universally been the pioneers of civilization throughout Australia. He could say from his own personal knowledge that the first white men who had trodden the solitudes of the Port Curtis district were the brothers Hay, pioneer squatters. They depastured their flocks there at an expense to themselves of £1,400. They lost five companions who had joined them in the enterprise. They lost many bales of their wool but they succeeded in opening up the country around Port Curtis. Recently, lands in that district had been sold to the amount of £30,000. The colonial treasury had been enriched to that extent by the energy and enterprise of the much-maligned squatters. I have been privileged to peruse the unpublished autobiography of one of the first squatters to venture into the unexplored regions around Port Curtis. And from the manuscript of this gentleman, who was destined to become, in later years, the holder of one of the highest offices under the government of Queensland, I extract the following graphic and interesting narrative of his impressions and experiences as a pioneer explorer. Quote, Having some years before read an account of Sir Thomas Mitchell's discovery of Fitzroy Downs and Mount Abundance, it occurred to me that, according to his description, that beautiful country could not be very far to the westward of the most outlying station on Darling Downs, and after some consultation my brother and I agreed that it would be worth while making an attempt to find it. We therefore set to work to make the needful preparations for an exploring trip into the Wild West. With a young white man and a black boy named Darby, I set off armed with a couple of guns and a brace of pistols, and equipped with three saddle and two pack horses carrying provisions, blankets, etc. Leaving the river Condamine, we struck off to the northwest, and on the third day, calculating that we had attained a position due east of Mount Abundance, we changed our course westward, and after forcing our way for ten miles or so through a thick brigalow scrub, we emerged on a patch of open downs country, with a creek running through it to the northeastward. Camping here in a downpour of rain, we started again next morning and continued our westward course for five days through a succession of scrubby ridges occasionally varied by a few square miles of open country. On our left was a range of low hills, to the top of which I climbed to view the surrounding country, but nothing could I see save scrub, scrub all around for miles, with occasional glimpses of open country in between. The first of these hills I named Mount Disappointment, and the second Mount Deceitful, because there was a fair-sized piece of open country at its foot, which at first promised well, but on closer inspection, turned out to be a mere patch of a few square miles surrounded by the inevitable scrub. Here we camped for the night on the bank of a larger creek than we had yet seen. 
This was our nineteenth day out, and there was as yet no prospect of our dropping upon the Fitzroy Downs. No natives could we see to enlighten us. We had caught a glimpse of one the day before. He was up a gum tree hunting a possum, and the first we knew of his presence was seeing him drop from the tree about twenty yards from us, pick himself up, and, uttering a succession of short howls, run crouching towards a creek close by into which he pitched himself headlong and disappeared. Our provisions were diminishing alarmingly, as we had only been able to shoot a half-dozen ducks and a few pigeons. We lay awake discussing whether we ought to abandon the quest of the Fitzroy Downs, and return to our point of departure. During the first part of the night, when we were tired, hungry, and depressed, we rather favoured a retreat, but after a few hours' sleep, a pint of tea, and a morsel of damper and beef, our spirits revived, and we determined to continue our westward course for another day or two, in hope of accomplishing our aim, and being the first to find the way from Darling Downs to the splendid country described by Mitchell. We agreed to be satisfied with two meals a day, consisting of a small bit of biscuit and a still smaller bit of salt beef. After getting the horses saddled and ready for a start, I suggested that, as there had been a good deal of rain, it would be well to fire our arms and reload, to make sure that there would be no misfire if any occasion should arise for using them. After firing our salvo of six barrels, there was a moment's stillness, and then arose a yell of men's voices and a screaming of gins and piccaninnies that made the welkin ring, and showed us that we were in the immediate vicinity of a big camp of blacks. The knowledge of this made us reload our arms rapidly and mount our horses without delay, for, although we would have been glad of an interview with one or two for the sake of obtaining information about the country, I had been taught by experience that with blacks, as with other members of the human family, numbers give confidence. They had large numbers, and we had not, so we lost no time in resuming our westward journey with as much speed as was compatible with dignity, viz. a smart walk. That night we fortified our camp by placing all the saddles on edge round our heads to fend off any missiles that might be thrown at us from the scrub, for it was possible that the blacks were following on our track. But the night passed in profound sleep, and next morning we continued our course. About noon a scrubby ridge on our left rose in a low isolated hill, and while our horses were having a bite of grass, a drink, and a roll in the dust to refresh them, I climbed to the top in eager anticipation of seeing open country to the westward, but no such luck was mine. Dense scrub greeted my view in every direction, not even varied by the open patches we'd seen during the earlier part of our journey. Descending in a not very amiable temper, I avenged myself by naming the hill Mount Horrible, and, much mollified by this, we mounted and proceeded on our way. Towards evening I noticed a slight improvement in the country, and the grasses, and when we had camped I saw the sun sink clear to the horizon, without the intervention of scrub, the first time that such a phenomenon had greeted our eyes during the whole journey. Next morning, while Darby was bringing in the horses, I shouldered my gun and walked up the sloping and open ridge at the foot of which we were camped. The country kept on improving as I advanced. Winston soil, thinly timbered with white box, and a good sprinkling of herbage began to prevail. The top of the ridge was level for about half a mile, and I continued walking on its western edge, when at the foot of a long slope before me appeared a large valley, its sides formed by open undulating downs country, with a good-sized creek meandering through it. Above the top of the opposite slope appeared in the remote distance the summit of an isolated mountain, which I at once concluded must be Mount Abundance. The sudden transition from great despondency to joy at this grand discovery 
was almost too much for me in my rather reduced condition, and I flung myself down at the foot of a box-tree, and for many minutes sat gloating over the squatter's paradise that lay spread out before me. Returning to camp with a light step, in a serene temper, in marked contrast to that in which I had quitted it, I communicated the glorious news to my fellow-travellers, who fully shared in my jubilation at this happy result. After saddling up and finishing our breakfast, which did not detain us very long, we started off to have a nearer view of the glorious scene that had so unexpectedly greeted my eyes. Descending into the valley I had seen, we crossed the creek and then ascended the long succession of sloping downs that formed the western side of the valley, and which were covered with abundance of the very finest grasses and herbage. On arriving at the summit of these slopes, a vast extent of open country lay spread out before us, stretching for miles to the south, to the west, and to the north, where appeared the mountain I had seen looming large against the sky, while behind us to the east lay the black and desolate-looking mass of scrubby country through which we had made our way. What would I have not given to spend a week in exploring this grand stretch of country? But, alas, and alack, our provisions were now reduced to so low an ebb that starvation stared us in the face, and we had to content ourselves with one day's exploration. Edging off all the time to the southward, and leaving the mountain behind us gradually sinking beneath the horizon. As we were riding along the top of a high plateau of open downs, a black speck appeared before us in the distance, which Darby pronounced to be a black fellow, but which, on our getting nearer, turned out to be a gin or black woman, busily engaged in digging up the ground with her long yam-stick, and searching either for edible roots or for ant-grubs. So absorbed was she in these operations that she never noticed us until the jingling of the hobbles and the tin pots and the pack-horses reached her ears when she looked up and saw us. Never was poor mortal more terrified. With a shriek she fled, giving utterance to a series of moans and never looking behind her, lest the dreadful vision should appear again and strike her dead. I told Darby to ride after her and head her back, which he did at a canter. She never stopped, but kept running on and on, until at last, finding that she could not escape, she flung herself on the ground, hid her face in her hands, and lay stock still, uttering the most heart-rending moans. I was much concerned for the poor creature, and would gladly have left her in peace to recover from her fright, but we were anxious to get information about water, always the most important element in exploring new country. Dismounting, therefore, I took her gently by her raven locks with one hand, and with the other removed her hand from her face, so that her eyes became visible, and then, assuming my very blandest expression of countenance, nodded and smiled upon her. At the same time, making signs to her to rise. This she did, and cast a timid glance at me, when I noticed that the expression of horror on her sable countenance was not quite so marked. I next told Darby to speak to her in his native tongue, for, although I knew she was not likely to understand the dialect he spoke, I thought it might soothe her to find that one as black as herself could associate with white men and horses and yet live. The experiment succeeded. She stared wistfully at Darby, the expression of her face gradually becoming calmer, and the horror was succeeded by astonishment. Taking out our biscuit-bag and putting a piece in my mouth, I handed her some, making signs to her to eat it, which she did, but apparently with more surprise than relish. I then took a pint-pot, and putting it to my lips, went through the form of drinking, pointing at the same time in various directions with a note of interrogation on my face. Suddenly a look of intelligence appeared on her countenance, and, pointing to the westward, she signified with animated gestures that there was a plentiful supply of water in that direction. 
where she pointed we could see an extensive plain with lines and clutters of trees which we assumed to be a native phrase yarra or flooded gum trees a sure indication of a creek or a river but in that direction we dared not go our steps had now to be directed as rapidly as possible to the east to the east to the land of the whites and i felt like the irish fisherman that if one came between me and my last resource i'd run him down if he was my father parting therefore from our sable friend now much calmer and almost restored to her seven senses we continued our way across those lovely downs and in the evening camped on a delightful spot where our horses had a grand time up to their eyes in magnificent grasses and herbage next morning the country began to change from downs into low ironbark ridges with patches of scrub and about noon as we turned the angle of a creek we saw before us about a hundred yards off a camp of about fifteen blacks with gins and piccaninnies who greatly to our surprise held their ground they neither ran away nor attacked us but awaited our approach with tolerable equanimity some of the men showed evident symptoms of fear not unmixed with a desire to try conclusions with us this was evidenced by the determined manner in which they grasped their spears and scowled at us others scrambled up the trees and stared at us in mute astonishment we pulled up about thirty yards from their camp when out stepped an elderly gin who began to talk to us in a mixture of the language of the blacks and the slang that served as a medium of communication between the two races on the borderland of civilization and savagery she was the one member of the party who had seen white men before having visited as she gave us to understand one of the outlying stations on the darling downs doubtless it was owing to her persuasion that her friends had neither run away nor attacked us we asked her where big fellow water sit down meaning the river condamine and in reply turning to the southwestward she flung out her skinny arms and exclaimed good way i was sorry that we could not afford to give the old lady some token of goodwill for food we had hardly any left and the taste for tobacco has not yet penetrated into these remote wilds leaving the blacks with every outward appearance of friendliness on both sides we pushed on as vigorously as possible for the rest of the day early on the following morning i dispatched darby to search for big water holes or lagoons where ducks might be found to replenish our scanty larder he only succeeded in losing himself and we lost valuable time in searching before we found him towards evening however we came across some billabongs anna branches and lagoons which made us aware that we were near a large river and furnished us with a couple of ducks for supper next morning we divided the last crumbs left in the bottom of our biscuit bag about a handful to each and this was the last of our farinaceous food our flour had been finished a couple of days before our sugar bag was empty and all we had left was a good supply of tea together with a few pipes of tobacco our ammunition was also very scant and our distance from the nearest station could not be under one hundred miles in a straight line turning once more to the east we reached the condamine at last and followed it up pushing our way through a succession of scrubs billabongs and large flats we had to keep carefully to the valley of the river and its bordering lagoons for on them depended our supply of waterfowl to keep us from starving darby was fortunate as a sportsman and by taking advantage of every cover crawling close up to his victims and blazing into the middle of the swimming flocks in defiance of the laws of sport he managed nearly always to hit one or two and occasionally three at a shot and thus kept us supplied with ducks while the powder and shot lasted but these soon became very scarce and on the third day our prospects became very gloomy 
only a couple of charges were left and the necessity of sacrificing one of our horses to keep us alive until we reached the nearest station was discussed we had even fixed upon a victim my pack-horse a lazy useless brute but in fair condition when next morning just as we had crossed a creek we came upon some fresh horse tracks going up it needless to say we followed them up with all possible alacrity and in a few minutes we were delighted to meet an outward-bound exploring party headed by mr connor they generously replenished our supplies of powder and shot while we in return gave them some useful information about the country we had been traversing after a pleasant and to us providential meeting we parted they for the west and we for the east a scrub soon appeared ahead of us long and unbroken and rather than follow it round we kept our course and plunged into it hour after hour we forced our way along but we had to camp in the middle of it we dared not hobble out our horses as they would have strayed off in search of water and the poor beasts had therefore to be tied up the only time that such a misfortune had befallen them on the journey we started again at dawn and eventually emerged upon the open country where a chain of lagoons greeted our longing eyes and furnished us with a breakfast of duck washed down with a pint of tea refreshing though sugarless and followed by a pipe of the soothing narcotic weed after giving the horses a few hours to make up for their night's starvation we again pushed on for a couple of days again our ammunition was getting short and again we began to cast wistful and longing eyes on the pack-horse our last charge when expended brought us a brace of ducks and on these we both supped and breakfasted towards nightfall we struck a large creek flowing towards the condamine which we knew must be dogwood creek and that being so we could not be more than twenty or thirty miles from a station thus cheered and encouraged we pushed on with the utmost speed which we could extract from our fagged and jaded horses and at last to our intense joy and relief we came upon some sheep tracks which led us to an outlying station belonging to mr ewer who was then the furthest pioneer squatter in that direction in a few minutes the hospitable hut-keeper had placed before us a large piece of damper bread baked in bush fashion beneath the piled-up embers some first-class mutton-chops and a pot of exquisite tea what i enjoyed most was once more having sugar in my tea a luxury of which we had long been deprived of our attenuated condition and dilapidated wardrobes i need only remark that a more haggard and ragged trio could seldom be seen even in the slums of london after resting and recruiting for a time we decided to make another journey to mount abundance in order to effect a more thorough exploration of the country than was possible under the circumstances of our first visit this time i was determined that we were not to suffer from hunger if i could help it so besides a far larger stock of tea sugar flour and beef on two pack-horses we took with us an extra pack-horse loaded with flour as a stand-by in case of accidents together with an ample supply of ammunition and fishing tackle which latter we stupidly omitted when we started on our former journey this time we revelled in luxurious plenty it was a complete contrast to the last trip when hurry hurry or starve was the order of every day we arrived at mount abundance in due course and spent six days in a thorough examination of the glorious fitzroy downs with the result that we determined to occupy this new and promising country as soon as possible End quote. End of chapter eight recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia